Welcome to Sierra Week Conversations, a new video and podcast series bringing you insights with impact into energy, economics, and a changing world in the COVID-19 era. I'm your host, Dan Jurgen. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this uh, Sierra Week Conversation. The topic uh, for today's conversation is energy transition, how much, how fast, a uh, very important uh, topic, and I'm delighted that I have uh, two great participants uh, joining me for this conversation. First of all, I have uh, Ahmed Kovater, who is the Chief Technology Officer at uh, Saudi Aramco. Ahmed, welcome to Sarah Conversation. Thank you. Good to be here, after all. Thank you. Thank you for being here. And then I have Shankar Krishnamurthy, who is the EVP in Angie uh, with a portfolio of responsibilities, which include uh, strategy, innovation, industrial development, research and technology. Uh, so, Shankar, welcome to Sarah Conversation. Thanks, Atul. I've been looking forward to it for a while. Yeah, we were hoping. <laughs> happy to be here. Yes, we were hoping to do this in in person in March with the two of you. Uh, so here we are in in July. So let's let's get started. Uh, and just to give our audience a view of what we will talk about. So you know, transition, energy transition, climate change are hot topics. But here today we're going to focus from a sectorial point of view. We have two great technology experts, and we will talk about various sectors. We know that electricity has made a lot of progress in terms of decarbonization, transportation less so. And then there is the industrial sector, which is quite difficult to decarbonize. So we will talk about uh, what you see as the future. And then we will also um, uh, look at how the world is changed in the world of COVID. So let's start with that, uh, first of all. So Ahmad, why don't we start with you and uh, tell us uh, how is it uh, you know, operating and doing research uh, in the midst of COVID? What's changed for you? So I think the biggest uh, change has been, of course, uh, the, the inability to see a lot of partners that we're working with around the world at a face-to-face, and that's that's probably the main thing. Uh, we've been able to continue our work, uh, luckily, here in Saudi Aramco, uh, you know, to a great extent, uh, as productive as we were before in many ways. Uh, our operations and facilities haven't really uh, been affected. So, you know, our operators and, and our maintenance and, and, and such have been working on, as usual, the oil industry, you know, 24 hours, 365 day a year operation. So from a technology point of view, we've had some challenges, of course, because we do have a lot of partners around the world. We have uh, work going on in many places. And sometimes you really need to be there to do the work and to kind of. Uh, uh, but the what surprised us is how effective we have been with the tools that we're using today. I mean, uh, the remote uh, teleconference, uh, video conferencing and such uh, really has uh, become our modus operandi now. You know, in fact, you know, I think we, we're, we're, this is the new normal. This will be the basis for all future and we will be doing less travel. We'll be working much more uh, remotely and online like we are right now. And we're getting good work done that way. In fact, I think we're more productive in many ways. Yeah. So, so Shankar, you are of course running a very big uh, electricity company. So, can you just give us a flavor of how you know things have changed in the last kind of uh, almost five months now with, with this pandemic? I think the the big picture is that, as I was saying, the infrastructure is delivered in terms of its ability to connect people, even while they are not physically in front of each other. That's a big thing. But also at the same time, while all of it works, and and I totally agree with you, Amit, that going forward. We'll see more of us doing, you know, uh, teleworking 
but there are questions about uh, you know the social aspect because employees in the world have been accustomed to working in a certain way they wish to be able to show up at work to meet their colleagues and this they can this start to miss a bit so that that's that's observable then on a more practical level when you talk about the research uh, particularly being able to do that on the productivity side uh, the things one can say overall have actually improved even for researchers for the reason that people are becoming more disciplined in terms of showing up at meetings they are more precise when they have to do this tele uh, teleconferences etc at the same time i think creativity is taking a little bit of beating because some of the creativity is a function of these uh, uh, you know interactions that occur are not necessarily scheduled so you walk around in the office you are doing something you run into somebody you listen to something that gives you an idea for me personally i have great belief in that being a source of good ideas and improving yourself that part has gone missing and then on another aspect the researcher actually don't so much dislike it because for them it's a change in the world which then enthuses them to be able to provide solutions which will have to be researched so they can apply their intellect their thinking power to coming out with solution that will help the world be different and we addressing problems of not being able to be always been in front of each other so i i would imagine many positives with obviously uh, a couple of challenges for us it's just as it is for a lot of other companies on earth manageable uh, in most respects but certain things need interactions say for example if you got employees to be inducted into a company i'm sure saudi aramco hires them by the thousands it must be a crazy challenge to say okay come here work for us but i won't tell you where your office is so okay those are aspects all of us are dealing with ahmed do you want to comment on that yeah. no i just i thought uh, the point about creativity you know strikes a chord with me very much and so that yeah. there is a sense of we do, there there's a missing uh, element uh, that that is so valuable in that interaction uh which really take is that creativity part the brainstorming the brainstorming quality on- online is just not the same we do it by the way we <laughs> we've had to adjust and do problem solving brainstorming on online but i have to say i agree 100% there is an element of face to face creativity uh inspiration whatever you want to call it that uh we're missing and we have to get back to somehow you know safely we will move the, to that back to that normal i hope Yeah so so then uh, linking to that uh, I'm saying with you how is the pandemic changing you know we have a huge economic di- uh, disruption around the world pretty much no country has been spared of, of that uh, and despite uh, many many good efforts and then of course the climate change uh, challenge hasn't gone away although the emissions went down but they have come back again fairly quickly so how does how do you think the world needs to balance and how are you balancing those two priorities economic development versus climate change Yeah so I think most of the, I mean we've heard the consensus almost view uh, across the board globally if you look at the the CEO uh, also letter that the oil and gas climate initiative uh, CEO signed jointly there's a view that you know even though there is a uh, say some uh, challenges from a uh, financial point of view facing all the companies that there is a resolve though to address climate change 
even I would say in a, an accelerated resolve in some cases. You know, you heard the public, you know, the New Deal in, in, in Europe and other governments announcing uh, actually taking advantage of the financial stimuluses that are needed in the in the coming years to focus on the transition, using that as a, as a way of accelerating the transition. So there's, to me, if anything, it's created greater pressures on companies to respond and to have strategies on uh, that address the climate challenge. So uh, Shankar, I mean, in Europe, as Ahmed just said, the, the Green Deal, pretty amazing it got passed. Uh, so how do you think that's going to impact and how are you thinking within Angie about sort of uh, future of uh, you know uh, climate change. So, yeah, so a few things about it. First, yes, the Green Deal. Well, actually, it was conceived of before uh, COVID hit. They talk about the Europeans talk about the 2000 or 2050 carbon neutral. And the good thing is that it's like three days back they hammered out an agreement on the stimulus package uh, where they agreed to dedicate 30% of that to uh, to to activities directly related to dealing with climate change. So that's a big number. They got 750 billion as a stimulus. And of that, a uh, third goes to climate change related activities. And they want to continue to have the same percentage in their budget until 2000, whatever, so that they meet their goal. This is positive. This is hugely uh, positive. There's no uh, doubt about it. I also take uh, a couple of other things that I would like to say, which is, so you mentioned that the, the 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 emissions went down and they yes they quickly started to come back uh, and you could see so many uh, satellite pictures being initially circulated on what Beijing looked like and later etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, but then the way I see it that is 2020 is a year in which uh, the estimates for emissions are expected to be say uh, south of 30 gigatons which is a number that was seen in 2010. Uh, so it's like 10% below 19, but it's a significant three, giga, three gigatons less. And because the economists will take a little bit of time to recover over the next few years. So I would imagine that to hit the 2019 levels again, it'll take a couple of years. And that gives a very small breather. Okay? So you say, okay, uh, it has had a massive impact on the economies, people are suffering, et cetera. But an offshoot of all of that is that it's been, in a sense, positive for the climate. Gives you, a, you know, six, seven gigatons to play with. It's not huge, but it is something. That's one element I would like to mention. The other one is, and Ahmed and I were earlier talking about uh, this with you, Akul, which is the changes in the way we are trying to work. It's also teaching us that you can actually live differently than what you have learned to live all your life, okay? which is what perhaps is needed. Like you need to tell yourself that you don't necessarily have to be doing exactly whatever you did in the past. So that COVID has taught us, which can be very positive for the climate change uh, matters, because one of the challenges every time somebody talks about doing stuff that helps the climate is, no, this is not how we do things, right? So I see that those two as, as positives on top of uh, the stimulus that, that, that I uh, mentioned and that I support. So, so Ahmed, let me, can I go back to your comment in, in passing about the OGCI CEOs uh, signing up? So could you just expand on it and for our audience, just remind everybody who is OGCI and what's the commitment which was made last week? So the, 
So the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative is a grouping of uh, major international oil companies, 13 major companies, both, of course, uh, European majors and the American majors, as well as uh, Saudi Aramco and Sinoc. Uh, uh, and the, the companies have come together since 2015, originally uh, under the umbrella of the World Economic Forum and then independently, uh, basically to address climate uh, together in a number of initiatives. And uh, one of the major initiatives, of course, is an investment program, a venture investment program of $1 billion into carbon capture technologies, uh, methane mitigation, and other technologies that could address the challenge, but also in many major projects that uh, were developing, such as uh, the UK uh, Teesside Carbon Capture Project and other uh, projects which uh, we're looking at uh, jointly addressing. But also the most important, I think, element of this is that CEO-led. And uh, it really brings the CEOs together to consider how the industry can really address climate uh, and, and setting targets, actually, for the group, uh, which are really reducing the carbon footprint of our operations and our uh, overall emissions, ultimately. And the OGCI has been, I think, very uh, progressive in its approach, uh, really set the, the standards in many ways in uh, how to deal uh, with emissions across the oil industry. Uh, so it's really been a great positive force toward, uh, you know, addressing the transition. And I think uh, we'll be seeing more great work going on in the next few years from here. Okay. Uh, and Shankar, you know, uh, electricity, I said in my introduction that the electricity sector has where the most of the action has happened on, on decarbonization. Could you say a little bit about, you know, what uh, what you are doing in Anji? What have you done? What so in terms of you know lower emissions or decarbonization priorities for your yeah. So there are a few things that people know us for. There are others which we do, but which are less known. So I will quickly deal with all of that. The big big thing is that yes, we are a utility. Historically, utilities had their positions in coal, and they continue to have most of them have positions in gas, etc. What we've been doing in the last few years is to, first of all, stop uh, coal plants, either outright closing them down, as we did in Australia, or not having ourselves anything to do with them, which then brings pressure on the rest of the community, because if guys like us stop doing coal, uh, the value of those assets start to fall, and then there are ultimately no buyers. Okay, So we work on those fronts, and that is fairly well known. There are two other things I would like to mention. One is we are a big fan of uh, energy efficiency. Okay, so I've heard my former boss uh, talk often about the fact that uh, you know if you don't consume, then you don't have to produce. Okay, so energy efficiency is a subject which hasn't received the kind of attention, for instance, that you know solar or wind, etc., have received. For us, it is one of those businesses where we are going and telling uh, industries that. We can work with you. We have, say, a certain knowledge set that enables us to discuss with you uh, the specifics of your carbon footprint, for example, and to propose solutions to you, and for us even to provide these solutions if you so desire. Okay? So we work at several levels on making uh, buildings, industries, etc., more energy efficient. And in certain cases, we are able to, for example, propose either energy performance contracts saying that, okay, I guarantee so much. If it doesn't happen, then, well, I'm contractually bound to deliver it. The other side of it is that often you find that all industries everywhere, you buy something today, 
and then it has a life of 30 years. But then the technology is changing very fast, and in 10 years from now, something much better emerges. Take lighting, for example, the, the LEDs of today compared to 15 years back or 20 years back. So you find yourself in a situation where an owner has assets uh, that are not fully depreciated. So he says, okay, why would I invest again when I bought it 10 years ago? At the same time, given certain circumstances, someone like us can go and make a proposal saying that I'm the one who's investing into changing energy-consuming devices at your end at my risk, and you pay to me from the savings that you would make, and therefore, I become an asset owner, and I guarantee the performance. And so, so those that they are driving the business of energy efficiency. And then, of course, everybody recognizes that we, we are a fairly large player in the renewables space, not so much only because of the fact that we have, say, 20-some gigawatts of renewables. A lot of others have. But we have a piece which is probably critical to making renewables work in, in, a, in a system. For example, people like uh, Microsoft or an Amazon or whoever expects elect, elect, green electricity to be delivered to them on the basis of what they consume rather than on the basis of how of what is produced. So you need somebody, and we've got these uh, uh, an experience, a history of constructing profiles that meet the needs of demand on the basis of us accumulating several sources of energy, some produced by ourselves and some sourced in the market. So it's that piece which makes us uh, some sort of a bigger contributor in a world where people want to go green. So Ahmed, I want to come to you and, and uh, talk about uh, transportation actually, because you know Saudi Aramco is the world's number one oil producer. Uh, and therefore, emissions from transportation clearly in, in, your, in your radar screen. And you have done some very interesting work led by your technology team around you know, new technologies related to the efficiency point which Shankar is making. So could you talk a little bit about you know, emissions in transportation sector? How do you see them going forward? So as you know, you know, transportation is one of the biggest sectors for emissions. And so it's, a, it's an important area for us to work on. But I would like to just kind of share the, our view. Our view is more of a full life cycle toward uh, emissions. So we have a, we're, we're very much uh, looking at how we can create the, the greatest reduction of emissions across the full life cycle. So we don't like to focus only on the actual transport sector itself, but actually providing the energy to the transport sector first. And so it's very important that we, we actually do a lot of uh, upfront work on the full life cycle studies. Uh, such as, for example, for oil, the oil industry. And as you know, you know the typical uh, or roughly the, uh, the emissions associated with an oil barrel are about 435, from the average oil barrel globally, is about 430 or so kilograms per barrel. People don't realize that up to 60 kilograms of that barrel are actually on average, and many more, much more for some, some oils, are actually uh, emitted just in the production, just before you even start using that that uh, fuel. Uh, so there's a lot of work to be done up front of just providing. There's a huge opportunity, up to 15% of the emissions associated from the use of oil products uh, can be saved up front where we're producing, just producing mm-hmm. the oil by, by emission. Efficiency was a great one, of course. But even simple things like flaring, reduction of flaring, which creates value, uh, 
methane leaks, reduction of methane leaks, uh, and then incorporation of renewables in the production. So there's a lot of opportunity to bring down, you know, because the, the actual use of the barrel is harder to decarbonize uh, because it's not stationary. The mobile transport, you know, aviation, large marine, heavy duty, those are very difficult to decarbonize. So the first step is really to decarbonize the process of production of the energy up front. And there's a huge opportunity of about uh, one gigaton per year till to the year 2000, 2100, almost 60 gigatons in the next century that could be saved just from the production side. So there's a tremendous opportunity to, to save before, because we're going to be here for a long time from use of oil. So we, we should, our best low-hanging fruit is actually before we even provide the, ga- the petrol at the pump, let's get that that uh, that carbon footprint as low as it will go. So this is where our focus was initially: is how can we avail the lowest carbon footprint fuel for the transport industry, and of course for for all uses of oil, but specifically transport is the highest use. So about fifty-seven percent of oil goes to transport. Uh, of that. About 50 per 50, I'm going to say, between light duty and heavy duty. So in, in those two areas, we looked at how can we uh, uh, help to maximize the value generated from that. And that's basically through efficiency. How can we improve the efficiency of what we do deliver to the transport sector? And we've done a lot of work working with OEMs in our own research centers on what we call fuel engine matching, which is basically removing the constraints of the fuel to the engine design, allowing automakers to optimize their engine designs based on optimized fuels and uh, customized fuels. So this has been a really exciting area where we have identified really the biggest opportunity is to move bulk of combustion from uh, the the conventional light duty vehicles from spark ignition to compression ignition. So how can we have the cleanest compression combustion Availed for the light duty vehicle sector and improve the heavy duty as well. So we've done a lot of work with OEMs and others on improving the combustion process with technologies that uh, allow clean combustion uh, and lower emissions. And so this is where we think there's a uh, low hanging fruit, the immediate opportunity which can move the the fleet as a whole, the existing fleet. Uh, in some cases, we drop in fuels uh, to uh, much higher efficiencies. So this is why. Uh, big focus area for us. But of course, we go beyond that to other fuels as well, new fuels, synthetic fuels, and hydrogen, which have lower carbon, low carbon fuels, I would call them, and then hydrogen ultimately, which is a zero carbon fuel. We do a lot of research in all of these areas. We have collaborations and pilot projects, including, of course, the famous mobile carbon capture, which is a a concept we took from initially from light duty vehicles. Now we're doing heavy duty, and now we're going on to even ships and, and looking at capturing the CO2 from the stack and storing on board and, and, and uh, disposing of, which is economically viable for large, large vehicles, actually. So thank you for that uh, explanation. Uh, two things you brought up, which we want to talk about, uh, both uh, a little bit briefly. One is, of course, hydrogen. And uh, I've been in the industry long enough to remember that we have talked about hydrogen at least a few few times, maybe half a dozen times before. So, Shankar, why don't we start with you? Why, why is there so much excitement about hydrogen? What excites you about hydrogen? Well, it's happening this time. That's <laughs> I would say. The way I see that is there is, in the last few years in particular, a greater appreciation 
of uh, the need for something like hydrogen. I would say broadly green gases to exist if one has to meet uh, the requirements of lowering emissions at a level where a planet is safe. So for me, the starting point is that you've had a lot of arguments and there are so many climates, captives, et cetera, who climate deniers, who have sort of created a feeling where it is difficult for everybody to quickly agree with what most scientists have been saying. Okay, But decade after decade, these guys have been narrowing down uh, in their assessment of what the impact would be in terms of the increase in temperature of, of, of the planet if we continue to emit a certain gigaton of greenhouse gases. As, as I was reading a couple of hours before uh, our, our call today, uh, a report which says that the scientists now converge on uh, an impact which is more in the narrower range of 2.6 to 3.9 degrees as opposed to 1.5 to 4.5 that they have been talking of till now. So the best case scenario vanishes and what you have is, so, so I look at it as, okay, there is going to be an impact unless you did something. Everybody agrees. That's the starting point. The second point is that a lot of debate has occurred quite unnecessarily on the ability of electrification in itself to address everything on Earth. Okay, I guess in the last couple of years, uh, the discussion has become more intelligent and there are more people agreeing that this is not a solution in itself. You can obviously increase uh, the, the electrification uh, percentages, etc. But then at the end of the day, you do need something which is different. And then the gases come into picture there. Okay? So why we are getting more excited is that a couple of years ago, we started a whole business unit for hydrogen. Okay? People laughed at us and saying that, what's it with these guys? But I guess we got it right because in the last two years, there's been a lot of news flow on a lot of people doing a lot of things around hydrogen. Okay. Now, in a big way, it is starting to happen because uh, people have gone ahead and started to invest in making it possible. We have gotten lucky with the falling price of, say, renewables, which is going to help hydrogen prices come down. And then for scaling up, you got Germany having its own big plan on hydrogen, Europe having a big plan on hydrogen. Etc. So I see, uh, firstly, uh, a belief that the planet has a problem. The fact that electrification is not an answer in itself. The fact that last three years a lot has been done by a lot of companies and these big moves uh, in Europe uh, are making me convinced that this time around this is going to happen. It's a matter of time because yes, the numbers are not satisfactory as of today from an economic perspective. You still have a big gap to bridge, but most people believe that it's a question of a decade to two decades when price parity would be achieved. So I can, you know, Ahmad, I can understand why a power guy would be interested in hydrogen, uh, you know, but what about an oil person? Why, why are you excited about hydrogen? So, so as an oil company, I mean, as any oil and gas company, uh, we're actually the biggest hydrogen companies in the world. So in many ways, hydrogen is, is really the key to hydrocarbons. If you look at uh, you know the, the energy content of hydrocarbon uh, and the I would say not the it's more than the energy it's the fungibility of hydrocarbons as opposed to carbon 
where carbon is a, is a difficult to transport, difficult to, to move. It's the hydrogen which makes the difference in terms of fungibility and transportability uh, and energy density that gives the advantage to hydrocarbons. So we recognize that half of our business right now is hydrogen. And so what we need is the hydrogen without the carbon. And so that's, uh, that's very much, if you look at the lowest cost, in fact, sources of hydrogen, in fact, the lowest cost sources of decarbonized hydrogen, it's actually byproduct hydrogen for petrochemicals because the petrochemicals serve as basically a sequestration of the carbon in a material which doesn't burn, it's used not to be burned, hopefully, and the excess hydrogen from the hydrogen balance, the hydrocarbon balance, is really the lowest cost green hydrogen, as you as we can say. So we have actually many, we have a great advantage, a resource advantage, in our petrochemical industries and our and our refineries that can avail the lowest cost hydrogen at scale. So there is definitely interest from oil companies to have a uh, to look at hydrogen as an energy vector. But I I would go back to your question: Why is this different? So I see three things different. Uh, I, I'm just very just again just confirming uh, uh, what I said, which is basically one technology. I think the mature the technology has definitely matured. Um, you know, fuel cells. You know, we have actually commercial products out there now, as opposed to the 2000s, where there were no there were no vehicles, there were no uses for the hydrogen uh, other than uh, conventional uh, combustion and others. So the the technology has definitely matured, and that makes a difference. You know, there's there's now a potential market to the economics. I think uh, you know the the fact is that the incredible drop we saw in renewables costs and prices is making the economics viable now for a an energy vector that's uh, competitive with hydrocarbons. I think it's, a, it's an interesting or chemical energy vector, which is competitive with hydrocarbons. There was never, prior to the, the drop in renewable prices, the potential for a chemical energy vector to be competitive with hydrocarbons. And I think the third element is reality. Reality strikes, um, you know, policymakers and regulators when they look at the scale and of the potential transition. Electricity represents maybe 18% of the primary, you know, over the use of primary energy means uh, to get to do electrification of the other 80% is technically, and I would say, uh, not just technically, but also from a financial and economic, uh, you know, to, to, to basically transition to completely new infrastructures in the chemical industry, ammonia industry, steel industry. That is a challenge beyond just technology. And technology enough is enough of a challenge. So I think reality strikes when you realize you do need some kind of chemical vector to decarbonize those other sectors. And I think that's where I think that realization of the time needed to electrify all of these other sectors uh, and scale up the renewable industry to meet the demand in all those sectors, I think that's when people start looking at the numbers and understanding we need something like hydrogen or methane or, or other synthetic uh, uses of renewable electricity, which I think uh, is what's happening. And we're seeing this uh, kind of a I would say a eureka moment, you know, in the industry and among governments that this is the only option. This is really a, 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 um, a converging uh, solution. You know, it's a, we're seeing the technology catch up. We're seeing the regulation support and the government support. And we're seeing uh, 
um, the costs and economics fit just in time. So, Franka, I want to ask you a, a couple of sort of just in the final uh, few minutes. We have two technologies, you know, which are sort of controversial somewhat, and you said in Europe, where I think they are even more controversial. One is, of course, nuclear, and the other is carbon capture and sequestration. So can you say, I mean, you're thinking, Angie's thinking on those, and of course, nuclear is a big part of your portfolio. Right? Yeah. So first, we have to be aware when we, so for nuclear, we took a decision some years ago to not uh, be participating in investments in more nuclear projects. Okay? We took a decision, yeah, it's a decision taken by us in function of what is best for our company. So we, it's like like all the companies on earth, we have limited capital and we have to find the best use for it uh, so that our shareholders are the happiest uh, as well. So in, in the scheme of things, overall, we said we, are, we got our nuclear facilities in Belgium. They're doing well, but we don't want to invest in nuclear. We would rather use the money to grow wind, solar, etc. That was a decision taken. There's no coming back from that. However, we do have engineering or um, uh, capabilities to do maintenance or, or solve problems in nuclear plants, etc. And those services are provided. Okay, on uh, on on CCS, I have to say that within the utilities industry, the discussion on CCS has been way less uh, frequent and way less intense compared to oil and gas. Okay, I can give you my take. Okay, this. I wouldn't say this is my company's stake because my company operates in a space where the discussions are limited on this tech. So my own uh, my own uh, take on CCS is I I always say that one of the uh, problems that there has been for the growth of CCS is that it has not attracted the kind of the same it has not been in the limelight uh, like solar and wind, which prevents a lot of discussions taking place in the right places for people to say the kind of stuff. For example, I could say that if you replace all the you know vehicles uh, to, to electric vehicles today and you save some gigatons, that's all squandered away by a few coal plants which are under construction or, or have been recently commissioned. If you look at the numbers, it's like converting the whole, you know, the fleet on earth and then losing it via emissions that uh, the, the coal plants do. And there's no stopping them because they are very new and they want to run their life next few decades. There's only one way, which is to capture uh, you know, CO2 and, and store it away. Of course, it comes with a lot of difficulties because uh, there is not enough in the name of acceptance by the public, largely on account of the fact that not many governments has gone around trying to regulate or have form or to, or to promulgate laws, et cetera, that deal with the ownership, the liabilities, et cetera, associated with transportation and a permanent storage. It's a big subject. In some countries, there are there is a fair bit of regulation, US, UK, Australia, Canada, Denmark, et cetera, but those are very few countries and it's not sufficiently evolved. Me, my belief is that and I, I have looked at some of the work that IEA does or others do. Uh, they, so for example, IEA would say that 10% of uh, you know emissions by 2050 should be stored away somewhere. As CCS could contribute 10% to emission reduction. It's a big number. 
And then you look at today's uh, number of plants that mostly uh, oil and gas has been, it's small. It's like, it's also tertiary stuff. It has other usages, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like 18, 20 plants. You probably need much, way more than that. So, so Ahmad, you know, you have been, and Aramco has been at the forefront of this. You had this very large uh, conference when we were still meeting back in February. Um, so what is your prognosis? You know, kind of uh, Shankar has laid out some interesting the aspects of, you know, yeah. the chat, right? I mean, with Shankar's point, exactly. I mean, it has not taken off and it's been mainly due to the lack of uh, say recognition or support from governments and frameworks and it's the, the lack of a price basically because it is a cost you know if you look at carbon capture uh, and sequestration it's a cost and commercial entities can't do cost alone without some kind of uh, in you know, some framework for that what, what if the market will value it though it will take off and I'm quite confident that today we're seeing Governments and markets actually being beginning to value uh, the life cycle uh, benefits of things like carbon capture. So, for example, uh, we, we see that, for example, hydrogen is actually a great enabler of carbon capture. Uh, you know, much of the hydrogen that will meet the initial demand in the next 10, 20 years, low carbon hydrogen, is going to have to come from uh, conventional uh, natural gas reforming coupled with carbon capture. And we see a number of major projects trying to address that in Europe today, some proposals, and I think they're gonna go through. I, I think that we just heard the Norway project is, was approved a few years, a few mm -hmm. days ago. So this is, uh, you know, this is going to create a market opportunity because then now you can price the carbon capture in the price of the product, which I think is a, is a big breakthrough. It will be, you know, if, if markets value the low carbon uh, content of products like blue hydrogen, green hydrogen, then that will translate into the best technologies, the lowest cost technologies that achieve that. So we think that the best approach is to have a, a, an agnostic approach and really set our governments and, 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 and consumers should really look for the final carbon life cycle carbon content as the criteria to judge a product or to price the product. If that happens, then we will see the best technology win, whether it's carbon capture renewable storage, which we are big believers in as well, hydrogen, green hydrogen, and blue hydrogen. We want to see which will win, actually. We're working on different opportunities. So this is where I think the market will drive these if, if we can uh, price the, the, the carbon content of in the product, ultimately. And the same way, by the way, that could actually even differentiate between different hydrocarbon products. For example, we believe we have a huge advantage. Our oil, for example, is the lowest carbon footprint oil from a production point of view. In our upstream, we, we, we have about 10 kilograms, we emit about 10 kilograms for every barrel, 10 kilograms of CO2 for every barrel, which is, you know, incredibly low. Uh, and if the market priced that, then we would, like we said before, there's an opportunity to huge reduction of emissions just that recognize that difference. And so I'm, I'm a big believer in uh, market forces that could, uh, actually uh, incentivize, in many ways, these technologies. And I'm confident that with the, these new emphasis on decarbonization, on, on extreme decarbonization, hard to decarbonize sectors, that CCS will find its place in the market because there really is no easy way to decarbonize. We've looked at the economics for decarbonization. And in the near future, if you want to achieve those really extreme decarbonization targets, very difficult challenges, Without CCS, it's 
it's very hard, it's very expensive because you, you have an existing, as Shankar mentioned, you have the existing new power, coal power plants, which is an economic loss, a stranded asset. And then you have steel industries, you have uh, petrochemical industries, which just cannot electrify uh, easily. It's a, it's a big challenge to move to electrification. You could bring hydrogen, and as we said, and eventually hydrogen will play a role in these industries, but it's going to be expensive for now. Uh, the scale isn't there, as we said. The, still, the costs are, are higher than a hydrocarbon. So I believe the solution will be at, at scale, CCS, for a lot uh, for the next 20 years, for a lot of these traditional industries where the infrastructure is already in place. Yeah. So clearly, just like hydrogen, the conversation on CCS is is picking up. That's uh, that's good news. So in in uh, that's so we've got a really a tour de force of of the world of energy transition and decarbonization. Thank you to both of you for this wonderful conversation around uh, energy transition, and thank you to all of our audience for joining us for this series conversation uh, presented to you by IHS Market. Thanks again. Thanks again for tuning in to another Week conversation presented by IHS Market. For the complete video series and previous episodes, visit us online at CIRAweek.com.